Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I'm with Austin Rupp. How's it going, Austin? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? Doing okay. It's uh, November 24th. Uh, it's the day before Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Likewise. What Thanks. are you doing for Thanksgiving? What am I doing for Thanksgiving? I am working in the hospital, Ooh. and then uh, hopefully I'll get off you know, at a reasonable time, and I'll go home and this year, we're going to go up to my folks' house. Last year, last Thanksgiving, you know, was like in the real bad phase of COVID here in Utah. And and uh, and it was before people were vaccinated. And so we just did it at our own home with my kids. And, and it was memorable. We had a good time. Showed them the first Lord of the Rings movie, which was like a big deal for them. Um, I remember but, that. But I remember yeah. us talking about this on a <laughs> podcast like a year ago. Posterity. Yep. Time is a flat circle. So, <laughs> but yeah, so we, um, this year I'm excited to get back with like extended family. Cause now like, you know, my parents and siblings, everyone's vaccinated. And now that the kids, you know, five to 11 can get vaccinated. Like, you know, a lot of them have had their first dose. And so feeling a lot more comfortable with the family gathering, although, you know, there's still some risk and, and it still really is out of control here in Utah, but um, at least we have some mitigation. So look, it'll be, it'll be nice to spend time with family um, tomorrow evening. What, what are you doing? Um, we are not actually doing anything tomorrow. Kirsten is on call. Um, so we will, which, which means she just takes calls from, you know, outpatient folks, which I hope won't be busy on Thanksgiving, but some yeah. people call in and are like, how much Tylenol can I take? And it's like, <laughs> it's Thanksgiving, man. Um, but anyway, we won't be doing much tomorrow except preparing for a Friendsgiving on, on Friday. We're having a couple close friends overall healthcare workers um nice you know to just kind of celebrate the the holiday so we will we're hosting and um i have never made a turkey and that's what we will be doing tomorrow is trying not to ruin several people's <laughs> meal. yeah yeah that's like I, worked, I feel like that's the biggest stress if you're in charge of the turkey because like the sides can be bad but if the turkey's bad like it was a failure <laughs> well, thanks for your support. Yeah, I got my mom's recipe. It's called, I don't remember what she called it, like the best turkey ever recipe or something. So can't go nice. wrong there. I mean, it won't that be sounds, the best turkey ever. That sounds very legit. Um, I have what? images of like Clark Griswold, you know, opening. <laughs> and... <laughs> the dried out. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, last year we, we actually found you can buy like a prepared turkey that like, I think we got it from Target or something that was like, all ready to go in a bag and you just like put it in the oven and it was like foolproof and it was nice. delicious. And I was like, why have we, why don't we always do that? That was so easy. But, but I get to eat my dad's turkey tomorrow and he is really good at it. So look, looking nice. forward to that. Wish me luck. Um, good luck. I worked, I worked last year. I'm pretty sure I worked a night actually. And I had the cafeterias Thanksgiving dinner in the hospital last year. Mm. And I uh, have to say, you know, that was, that was decent. Um, Kirsten, I remember was at home and like had like a frozen meal or something. <laughs> <laughs> she was Some like eight s- months pregnant or seven months pregnant. And oh, had, man. Like, uh, That's lasagna, sad. Frozen lasagna or something. And uh, my meal was better than that. I can remember that. So I think I have, uh, this will be at least my fifth year in a row working Thanksgiving. I, I work every Thanksgiving, but it's a fair trade-off because I usually get Christmas off. But 
yeah, one day I hope to just not work on Thanksgiving. And like, it's, you know, right now I'm in the middle of this course with the second years, it's an 11 week course. So I've actually been off hospital service for that time, except for a couple night shifts. And so I haven't been on a day shift hospital list thing for, you know, since September. <laughs> so I'm, wow. I'm a little rusty. I'm like, so going in tomorrow, it's going to be, it's going to be fun getting my feet wet again. And, but the course, nice. the course has been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I don't have that like existential dread when I wake up in the morning. Um, you know, I'm just, it's, I'm excited to go to work and the med students are awesome. <laughs> are you saying you've had that until you started the course? Or I'm not sure what you're <laughs> saying with that. Um, no, I'm just saying that sometimes I'm glad you don't have it. <laughs> You know, sometimes the the hot, you know, the the doctor life get, you just grinds you down I a little see. bit, yes. and you're like, yeah. oh man, I got to go back to the hospital this morning. Like, I'm actually like kind of excited to go to the hospital tomorrow since I haven't been a doctor. Oh, there you go. For okay, a while. So, so so two good things: you've been refreshed by the course, but you're also ready to get your hands dirty again with clinical medicine. Yeah, I'm and I think I, I finally I finally have learned pulmonology. Like, I totally missed all of that as a second year med student. I did not understand any of the physiology. Now I feel like I got it. So that's You're nice. You're going to be throwing pressure volume loops up on any whiteboard you see. Oh man, like, the students uh, are going to hate me. Yeah, no, it's, it's been good. But good. Um, yeah. I so. wonder where you fall in the quartile now of hospitalists hours and and you know yeah. maybe we need to clear the hospital out now that you're coming on service <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know if we were going to start with that but maybe that's, that's a, a great segue. segue that's a great segue let's do that one so one All of the right. papers i wanted to talk about this week uh was originally published online in on uh, september 13th uh in jama internal medicine it was included in the november issue though so that's why we're talking about it it's the title is association between physician part-time clinical work and patient outcomes and so the question that they were wondering is if patient or if, if hospitalists are part-time, do their patients have different outcomes? And so they looked at 19,170 hospitalists and they looked at 392,797 hospitalized Medicare patient encounters to see if there was any difference in mortality was kind of the main outcome they were looking at for the hospitalists that worked fewer clinical shifts and they divided them up into quartiles and the lowest quartile worked an average of 58 shifts a year and the highest quartile worked an average of 163 shifts a year. And so they looked at mortality rates. The mortality rate was 10.5% in the lowest quartile. So the people that worked fewer shifts. And then, then in the second quartile, it was 10%. And then it was 9.5 in the third quartile and 9.6 in the fourth quartile. So, you know, numerically fairly close, but with numbers that big, it was statistically significantly different. So the, the mortality rates are slightly higher for part-time hospitalists. And so now that I have this, this teaching gig, this uh, significant chunk of non-clinical FTE, I'm like, oh no, am I in that? <laughs> am I in that first or second quartile now? Um, you know, and they sliced and diced it and tried to look for other associations. Like, is there a difference with age? Is there a difference if you work at a teaching hospital or not? And really, like the the it was pretty consistent. Like, you know, it was basically like how many shifts did you work? Kind of predicted the mortality of the patients. And they did look at like all these patient factors too to adjust for it, so that you know you had expected outcomes for the patients that are this severe. And with all those adjustments, you know, there was still this association. So it is, it is an observational 
study confounding. though right so there, there's always there's always risk of bias and and confounding there and, and things that are unmeasured right mm-hmm. um but it, it you know it's interesting like why like really why would you expect there to be higher mortality rates like what are what, what are patients dying from mostly in the hospital like it's it's like fortunately pretty rare actually for your patient to die in the hospital you know uh, unexpected how many do we not know right? about you know 30 days like every once in a while i'll get one where it's like you know i'll go back in for whatever reason and it'll be like your patient passed away or there's even just like a note that like you know yeah we called daughter to make a follow-up appointment she says patient passed away like oh <laughs> you know like i mean i just wonder right actual actual death in the hospital is way less than 10 percent nine to ten percent it feels like but that 30 day mortality we don't we're not even really given that yeah that information you know it's like Mm -hmm. i would be interested to know what mine i mean i do but don't want to know i guess (laughs) sometimes but anyway i think confounding is definitely it definitely has to be part of the discussion here but but i do think that it other questions I had were, is this just a continuous, it's not like if you work, you know, 200 shifts versus 198, like that's not a difference, right? There's no like, like the quartile thing is maybe not the best way to look at it, but you, I would think that there would maybe be a difference just with, you know, system things, communication things, staying up to date if someone works 300 versus three, you know, like I I think that that makes some sense. The artificial, segregation into quartiles is you know i don't know if that's the best way to think about it um Mm. but it's but it's interesting and yeah yeah, i don't know i mean does this need to be talked about more or or you know and it probably applies to most specialties i mean not that hospital medicine is a specialty right but like the more patients you see the the sharper you stay with patient care i think right or then the more number of hours that you work or however you want to say yeah that. i do um, i do think there's yeah definitely something to be said for for experience and yeah putting in the time and, and i think yeah if you're if you're not working for a lot of shifts like you do see your skills start to atrophy for sure you know and 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 then i think too like you mentioned maybe like you're less familiar with the hospital staff so maybe you're not you know as good of a team player that can have a, a impact and then um yeah i don't i don't know i think it's interesting i think you could almost like if i was predicting the results of this study i would almost predict that like you'd almost have a normal distribution where the best outcomes are in the middle the 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 physicians that are working a lot but like not too much but then the ones mm-hmm. that are working like really full time, like you'd almost expect their outcomes to maybe start getting a little bit worse because those physicians are at risk for like burnout, they're overworked, they start missing things, right? You get sloppy when you've been on for too long, mm-hmm. but you don't, but you don't actually see that uh, in this, but you know, the third and fourth quartiles are about the same as far right. as the numbers. So it's like, okay, well, if I had to pick a quartile to be in, I'd probably pick the third quartile because they're not working as much, but they still have good outcomes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. I think it's something that's really hard to study, but very interesting. I think this also represents like a cultural change, right? Where like, you know, medicine for me is a profession. I do feel like it's a calling, but it's not something that I want to be doing 24 seven. And I think there's definitely a, an old guard where it's like, I'm a doctor. That's all I do. I'm going to work 80 hours a week till I die. And I think like our generation is very much like, this is an important job and we want to do a good job at it and take care of people. But we also want to have like a normal life too. And we put a lot of value on, on wellness and work-life balance. 
And so I do mm-hmm. think that's, that has to be part of the discussion, right? Like, cause more and more people are going to, you know, and that's part of why I did academic medicine too, is I wanted to have the opportunity to do non-clinical things in my job. And so I don't know. I thought it was an interesting paper though. So worth, worth discussing, hopefully, you know, for the next four days, my patient outcomes are excellent. Um, you know, based on all of the physiology that I've reviewed for the last two months. (laughs) Yeah. Now, so, so now we think we know that you want a hospitalist that works a decent amount and you want a woman, right? I think we talk about that at one point. There was a study that showed maybe better outcomes if the physician is a woman. uh, I think specifically it was in internal medicine. I can't remember, but um, I think there were some fair criticisms of that paper. I don't really remember details off the top of my head, so I don't want to spitball too much. We, we did look at another paper that was similar to this, where they had quartiles, where they looked at the length, the duration of shifts, or um, mm. like how, how many shifts in a row. Yeah. And, and there was like a difference between if you were working, you know, seven to 10 seemed to be better than like three to five shifts. Um, and I think that makes sense as far as like continuity and things. So yeah, there are issues with this in, you know, hospital patients are complex. And so, you know, you want someone who has seen a lot of them and who's been on for a bit, but anyway, what's your, what's your first paper? Yeah. Well, I guess maybe should we piggyback on the wellness and talk about, um, trends of depression in, in house staff? Yes. Sure. All right. So this was, uh, this paper was called Trends in Depressive Symptoms and Associated Factors During Residency, uh, 2007 to 2019, a repeated annual cohort study. Um, it was published by Fang and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine on November 16th. Um, as Jenkins alluded to, you know, intern and resident wellness um, and mental health have become increasingly pressing topics, you know, um, there have been several kind of devastating stories over the last several years, it feels like, you know, with um, resident suicide, um, but also, you know, sort of just a larger push overall to emphasize wellness and, um, you know, mostly just let people be happy, I think, right? Um, so, you know, we're not talking this, we, I mean, we will talk more broadly about this in a moment, but this study um assessed folks one to three months before internship. Um, interns were invited to participate and completed a PHQ-9 survey, which is a, you know, a, a validated measure of depressive symptoms, um, in addition to other questions about sleep, things outside of work, et cetera, et cetera. So they completed a, a survey, including the PHQ-9, one to three months before, before starting internship, and then quarterly surveys at three, six, nine, and 12 months to, again, assess depressive symptoms, um, work hours, sleep, outside stressful events, perceived medical errors, mental health service utilization, faculty feedback, and learning experience. Um, that's kind of everything that, w- that they tried to address with the survey. Uh, the primary outcome here was the change in depressive symptoms as defined as the difference between the mean quarterly PHQ-9 score and the baseline PHQ-9 score. So that took me a little while to figure out. Um, they were specifically, that they accepted, and it is accepted, I guess, which we can again talk about in a second, that people are going to get more depressed when they start internship. This was how much worse do they get? So um, it's important to recognize that. Um, They had 16,965 participants um, that completed the baseline and at least one follow-up survey. Uh, The baseline depressive symptoms increased from 2007 to 2019 from 2.3 to 2.9, which this study is not designed to look at, but 
Jenkins, do we just think we're, we're sadder as a society now, or is this emphasis on evaluating your own mental health? Any thoughts on just the baseline depression that we as a healthcare system or interns are experiencing? I think it's both. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know. I think there are lots of, you know, you could argue there's lots of sort of societal, um, you know, are we more um, fractured than we've ever been, you know, sort of left versus right, et cetera, et cetera, which we've talked about a little bit in the past, but maybe we just won't go into that. So anyway, people got sadder from 2007 to 2019, um, but the increase in depressive symptoms from baseline to at some point an internship um, decreased over time. So the magnitude of the increase in depressive symptoms did decrease. On average, the score increased 4.1 points in 2007 and only three points in 2019. So that is a good thing. Um, again, it's kind of sad that we know people are going to get more depressed. Um, it's just a question of how much more. And, you know, I wonder if that's the best we can do, but Anyway, people did get overall less depressed over time um, when assessed this way. There were two factors that significantly changed across cohorts and predicted greater increases in depressive symptoms. Um, that was the proportion of, of women surveyed and the proportion with a history of depression. Actually, I think I said that wrong, sorry. So um, the proportion with a history of depression did in, did predicted a higher increase in depressive symptoms, but females actually um, had a greater decrease in the increase of depressive symptoms. And again, I'm probably losing everyone, but they went from 4.7 to 3.3, whereas men went from 3.5 to 2.9 um, from 2007 to 2019. So again, in a very convoluted way of saying that Everyone got more depressed, but men had a greater magnitude in change than women. And um, that was maybe chalked up to women utilizing mental health services more frequently than men. The only other point that I found sort of interesting in here is that um, the non-surgical specialties had a smaller increase than did surgical specialties. So women are, are doing better and non-surgical specialties are doing better than they have historically. Um, yeah. Those were my kind of takeaways. You know, again, I'm not sure if this is the best we can do. This is maybe a half step in the right direction, but I think mm -hmm. the goal should be, let's not have our interns get more depressed overall. <laughs> right. The goal should be, we actually get less depressed uh, right. from baseline which is, you know, when you're throwing someone into a, a rigorous, difficult training program, like, you know, it's going to be tough and everyone copes differently. And, and definitely if, if, yeah, if you're starting out in a bad place, it's not going to help. <laughs> um, and I, I do think it's interesting, you know, you brought up the, the differences between the surgical and non-surgical. And I think, you know, some of that probably has to do with work hours stuff, right? Because, you know, with the work hour revolution, like I feel like the non-surgical services have done a better job probably of hewing to that. Whereas like the surgical services, you know, they did their own studies to see if there was any difference in outcomes. And there's like, oh, there's no difference. So we can go back to like abusing our residents and doing, you know, like, you know, endless call living in the hospital. And I think when you put people through that, that's like going to make them, you know, struggle there because there's going to be some sadness there. So I think that's probably the biggest reason I would guess for the difference between services. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's a cultural thing too. I don't know if like non-surgical services are generally like considered like a friendlier or more positive environment. Like it's, you know, it's, it's definitely different to just present to your goofy attending on medicine rounds than it is to like, <laughs> 
do like a stressful surgery with mm-hmm. like, you know, like a scary attending looking over your shoulder, like stress Absolutely. levels are different, right? I think medicine mm-hmm. is in that way is, is easier, easier than surgery. Um, but yeah, I think like ultimately it's like, well, how, how do we actually deal with this? And we, you know, everyone mm-hmm. loves talking about wellness and they love sending out wellness, mandatory wellness surveys that you have to fill out. Um, you're like, I, I hate surveys. Please stop sending me surveys. Um, but, uh, like if you really, I mean, does like scheduling yoga and rock climbing and meditation and all of those things, does that really help wellness or do like people just need like a day off to like Mm -hmm. go to their doctor and get their laundry done. And like, really, I think if we want better balance, or, or better wellness, we need better balance for our residents. And, and that means probably like reducing some of their, like, I think you got, you got to be in the hospital, you got to work to get the experience. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe longer stretches of time off, maybe more vacation time in between, um, please let's raise their salaries. Cause they're like yeah. working so hard and getting paid, you know, not enough for what they do. Those are all things that like you could actually do that would in- increase resident wellness, but we're kind of left with all these like funny band-aid ideas that like look yeah. good on Instagram. <laughs> I do think, yeah, you know, um, right. The authors do talk about work hours have gone down over time. Sleep has increased over time. Um, you know, feedback has improved over time. So I think thinking about and enacting some positive changes is a step in the right direction. Um, you know, there's always going to be some inherent conflict with old guard of, you know, yeah, you got to spend a hundred hours in the hospital per week. Um, you got to do 500 Paris and TCs, you got to do 500 central lines, you know, I think, um, and in some ways you, you can't lose, like you've said, you know, that, sort of time spent with patients, time spent, you know, in the healthcare system. Um, but yeah, it seems like we could do better. And those are some great ideas, Jenkins. So um, we're all about wellness here at last week, right? This makes us yeah. well. Our banter makes us well. I'm we should be able to text the nurses, though. <laughs> Being able to text nurses would definitely increase my wellness. And uh, if anyone wants to hire me to be their chief wellness officer, I have, I have lots of ideas. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, let's do the next paper. This one is... Uh, from the New England Journal on November 5th, chlorthalidone for hypertension and advanced chronic kidney disease. And so I, I'm kind of reaching back to when I was a second year med student, like I feel like when I learned about the thiazide diuretics, like somebody told me, and I don't know if this is true, but like, oh, you really don't want to use these in like advanced CKD because they don't work as well. And so a lot of times we end up like switching people to loop diuretics. And I think that that practice has been kind of like recently called into question. And I hear nephrologists tell me like, oh yeah, that's nonsense. Like you don't have to switch to a loop, like it'll still work. Um, but this was like, you know, this, this trial was done because there really isn't like a great evidence base to, to know what to do with thiazides and advanced CKD. So it was, it was nice that somebody did this trial. It's a small trial. It's 160 mm-hmm. patients. They randomized 81 to chlorthalidone, which is a thiazide like diuretic. It still acts on the same, you know, distal tubule transporters as other thiazides, but I don't know why they call it thiazide like, uh, they also had- Dr. Stoltz, doesn't he love chlorthalidone? <laughs> Uh, I think any good internist likes chlorthalidone. Yeah, Fair for enough. sure. Yeah, Se- 79 people were randomized to placebo. Um, you know, looking at the breakdown, like 58% of uh, patients were white, 40% were black, not very good representation of Asian or um, Hispanic people. Uh, only 22% were women. Um, 
can you guess which population we're looking at? I think this was partially a VA study. I think they had a, a fairly good veteran cohort. Um, I can't remember exactly, but 52% um, had CKD due to diabetes. Um, so ultimately they had 140 of the 160 patients finish this 12 week trial. The average GFR of the patients was uh, 23. So, you know, definitely not great. I think, you know, we would call that advanced CKD. What is that? And these stage? are also, you know, sort of the patients, sorry to interrupt, but these are oh, kind of the patients where you're like worried about dropping them too low, you know, that you're like right. sort of hesitant about like, Oh, should I really do a blood pressure pill? Um, so glad they just went for it. Yeah. That. And like also patients with advanced CKD often have difficult to control blood pressure. And so you're always like reaching for other options and it's like, well, mm -hmm. I'd rather give someone thiazide than like minoxidil. Yeah. So, and, and in these patients, you know, they're on an average of three, three and a half blood pressure meds was the average. Um, 60% of them were on a loop diuretic already. Um, so, uh, so, you know, so they randomized them, they checked baseline 24 amp, 24 hour ambulatory blood pressure. The systolic average was 142.6 in chlorothaladone. It was 140.1 in the placebo. And at 12 weeks, the blood pressure had dropped 11 millimeters of mercury in the chlorothaladone group compared to 0.5 millimeters of mercury in the placebo group. Um, but really they saw that benefit at the four week mark is kind of where they saw the, the, the line split. Um, you also saw a drop in diastolic blood pressure in the chlorothaladone arm. And a secondary outcome they looked at was the albumin to creatinine ratio. That was also lower in the chlorothaladone arm, 52% lower uh, versus 4% in the placebo arm. And I don't really think of thiazides as being helpful for proteinuria, but I think just lowering the pressures, you know, takes stress, you know, lowers that GFR. So you're not stressing uh, the, the glomerulus out so much. Um, so with that though, you, you, they did see, uh, you know, the chlorothaladone patients did have bigger bumps in their creatinine. Um, so almost half of patients had a bump in their creatinine of more than 25% of baseline, which when, you know, you're already, your average GFR is already 23. Like that could be pretty significant increase. They also saw more hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hyperglycemia, hyperuricemia, kind of the classic thiazide side effects in the chlorothaladone arm. So that was not surprising. Uh, four patients in the chlorothaladone arm had to stop treatment because of adverse effects. Um, and then they did see a, a GFR drop in the chlorothaladone group, an uh, average of 2.7 millimeters per minute per body surface area compared to placebo was only 0.5 mLs per minute at 12 weeks. So better blood pressure control definitely at the cost of a slight drop in your eGFR. So I think, you know, where I would take this is if, you know, if you're in that range of 23, your blood pressures are out of control. I think chlorothaladone is a good option that you can try. Watch out for side effects, watch for that bump in the creatinine. You might have to back off. Um, but if you're like lower than that, if you're down in like the teens or, you know, less on your EGFR, maybe it's not worth the risk or the sacrifice of those three milliliters uh, per minute of GFR. So that was, that was my takeaway. Yeah, I think you, my biggest thought was also just that uh, glad someone, you know, is studying sort of this thing that you get taught when you're, yeah, a first or second year. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have a, a lot of other thoughts on this one. Like I said, I'm always sort of hesitant to monkey around with the blood pressure pills at these sort of GFRs and creatinines. The creatinine increase, you know, um, at those sorts of GFRs, 
also is is probably not that big of a deal. You know, it goes up by 20%, but that only corresponds to a two per, a two point loss in your GFR. So it's like, oh, well, if the crafting goes from three to three and a half, who cares? <laughs> but, um, you yeah. know, I these these people are really hard to manage. And um, I do think we, you know, need more in the toolbox. And so glad again that, yeah, someone was willing to look at this. Which dog um, was that? <laughs> That's Theo. That was Theo. Hello, Theo. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Right on. Package okay. season. Um, the only other, I didn't have a point on this, but I'm not going to talk about this paper, but we also, Annals looked at Holiday Heart, if it's real, with AFib and alcohol. And I think you tweeted about this and it is real. So we're studying all these sort of things that you get taught and uh, happy to see it. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. What should I talk about next? Um, I'll talk about, you know, sort of a cardiovascular study as well. Um, I looked at the association of mental stress induced myocardial ischemia with cardiovascular events in patients with coronary heart disease. This was published by uh, Vaccarino and colleagues in JAMA on November 9th, 2021. Um, really what drew me to this study was um, my naive sort of understanding of whether or not myocardial ischemia could be induced by mental stress. And, you know, people talk about, um, oh yeah, I've been real stressed lately and that gave me a heart attack. And I didn't actually know that was an, a, a physiologic phenomenon, but it is. So um, learn something new every day. Anyway, um, they talk a lot about myocardial ischemia from mental stress in, in the intro. And it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, in, in approximately 17% percent of patients with stable coronary heart disease, acute mental stress in the laboratory, um, you know, get, gets you myocardial ischemia on perfusion imaging. Um, it's generally asymptomatic. It occurs at a hemodynamic workload and occur, can occur in patients who don't have a conventional positive stress test. Um, and so we're not quite sure prognostically what mental stress-induced myocardial ischemia means, but this study um, set out to look at that. So it was a pooled analysis of two studies. Um, one was called MIPS and the other was called MIMS2, and I'm not going to tell you what those stand for. Um, MIPS included patients with stable coronary heart disease, whereas MIMS2 included patients that were hospitalized with an MI within the past eight months. The primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death and first or recurrent non-fatal MI, and the biggest secondary endpoint included heart failure hospitalizations. Um, they induced mental stress by giving patients a public speaking task. Um, that's explained in the appendix, which I didn't really go into, but it sounds like they gave folks a topic, gave them three minutes to prepare, and then they had to give a little speech to a small group of people. So sounds stressful. Um, they performed SPECT myocardial scans at rest with the mental stress and with conventional stress. So um, in total, there was uh, the pooled analysis showed um, there were 918 participants and 16% had mental stress-induced myocardial ischemia. 31% um, had conventional-induced stress ischemia or conventional stress ischemia, and 10% had both. Um, the mental stress-induced ischemia was associated with a higher, um, or was associated with more primary and secondary outcomes. So, um, in the mental stress-induced ischemia folks, they had 6.9 um, primary endpoint events per 100 person years in a pooled analysis versus 2.6 in a group that did not have um, mental stress-induced myocardial ischemia. Um, so that corresponded with a hazard ratio of 2.5. Um, the combination of both mental stress 
and conventional stress induced ischemia was more strongly associated with both the primary and the secondary outcome. But I found it very interesting that conventional stress alone was not associated with increased primary or secondary outcomes when compared to patients without either type of myocardial stress. So that is um, interesting and also sort of like, why are we then treating people with conventional stress induced myocardial ischemia? So maybe I misunderstood that, but. Um, you know, very interesting. Um, so they talk a lot about the pathophysiology and how it's mostly probably endothelial stuff that goes on with the myocardial, um, with the mental stress induced myocardial ischemia. Um, you know, it occurs independent of hemodynamic variables, the mental stress induced ischemia. So, um, it's associated with worse outcomes. It's interesting um, what this means therapeutically and moving forward is definitely to be determined. But, um, you know, I think still sort of stress is bad is how I'm going to take this. And, and I've always felt that way. And I think most of us feel that way. But now there's actually some, you know, um, increasing data to support that. And, you know, we need to evaluate it further and recognize that mental stress is, is absolutely causing pathophysiology in our patients. Yeah, like I only recently learned that this is like an actual validated form of, of a stress test where, you know, I think of like the exercise stress test or a dobutamine stress test or a dipyridamol or whatever, right? Like there's, we have all these different ways to do it. Um, and, and, and like, I was just thinking like, would a public speaking stress test, would that be enough to, to get my heart rate going enough to, <laughs> to do this test? And it, it probably could in some instances, but what would be your greatest, what would be the biggest stressful stimulus for you, Austin, that would cause your heart rate to go fast enough that they could do a, a stress test on you? Well, I guess before I, before I answer, I think I don't think you actually need a target heart rate. I think they're saying hemodynamic variables are not indicative of the stress that you're experiencing. So it's yeah. like you're giving a public speech, but your heart rate might be 90, but your heart could still be ischemic. Um, yeah. The biggest stress for me, whew, um, I mean, probably, you know, um, have a bunch of people coughing on Gus, you know, or something <laughs> yeah. like that, you know, with uh, how the pandemic has rewired my already anxiety proven brain. I think I would get tachycardic <laughs> and hypertensive if I watched that. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't really think, I mean, fear, I don't have like a bad fear of heights, but like, so I could imagine certain scenarios if you had me up like really high up and like, I felt like I didn't, I wasn't safe that could do it. Or like anytime my wife starts talking about rearranging the furniture in the house, um, that makes me really stressed out. <laughs> I, uh, I do. I mean, I think public speaking is the, is like uh, not a quite a surefire way to get people stressed, but like yeah. I, I get nervous when I give lectures to the learners and stuff. Um, yeah. Maybe I should get nervous about our pod. I mean, there's hundreds of people listening. So <laughs> um, <laughs> hundreds, there's hundreds of them. Yeah, no, uh, my wife is like, she's petrified of public speaking. Like, you know, like she's been asked to like give lessons at church before. And like, it is like the whole week we all have to suffer as she gets ready for it. 
Um, and then it, it always is a, like, you know, the way she, I've never seen her, but like the way she describes, it's always like a disaster because she just freezes and she's so, and you know, and then she starts blushing and then it's like this like whole cascade and, and then she just like almost will start crying. I'm like, yeah, like some people, like it's, it's like, wow, terrifying. I don't get that bad. Yeah. What about like, uh, you have to go into the room of the, uh, person on, <laughs> ms cotton 60 bid and oxy 15 q4 prn and tell them you're tapering their op <laughs> <laughs> i don't know anyway no, no, uh, that's just uh, that's just part of the job yeah all right very, well very interesting to me yeah yeah um well i think we need to we need to shift gears to a little bit anticoagulation thrombosis topics yeah. now here so we, go. we got a we got a few of those here um, there was an interesting paper published November 15th in the New England Journal, Milvexian for the Prevention of Venous Thromboembolism. So, you know, anytime one of these comes out, I feel like I got to read it at least. Um, but this is actually pretty interesting. So this study, you know, was funded by Bristol-Myers Squibb in the Janssen Research and Development. So that's my disclaimer. Ooh. No, we don't actively boo pharmaceutical oh, companies. Okay. We just have to note if they're the ones oh, funding right. and writing the manuscripts. I don't know <laughs> if they contributed to writing this manuscript, but they're looking at... The funding uh, source had no uh, no say in authorship, but expected a certain outcome and would have pulled funding if we didn't see this. <laughs> oh, uh, so they were looking there, you know, everyone's looking for this holy grail uh, anticoagulation where, you know, you prevent clot, but you don't increase risk of bleeding. And a lot of people think that the way to do that is to inhibit factor 11, because, you know, it's very important for generation of clot, but it's not that important for hemostasis. So, um, so that's kind of been a target and there's been multiple studies that have looked at this. Now we actually reviewed a paper back in January of 2020, uh, for a different factor 11 inhibitor, it was a monoclonal antibody called Ososumab. Um, and they looked, yeah, they looked at it compared to an oxaparin for prevention of VTE after like an elective arthroplasty. And it was not inferior to an oxaparin. Um, and then there's another study that was just published like in August of the New England Journal. I was looking at another monoclonal antibody called abilasimab, um, which is also targeting this factor 11. And it was effective for uh, VTE prevention, and it had a low risk of bleeding compared to anoxaparin. You know, the downside to both of those medications is that they're, you know, IV. Um, so, you know, you got to give them in the hospital or an infusion center. Also, you know, monoclonal antibodies tend to be pretty pricey. Um, so this new medication that we're looking at is called Milvexian, and it's an oral factor 11 inhibitor. Uh, has a half-life of about 12 hours, so kind of similar to our, uh, like our uh, eloquent or uh, a Pixaban. Um, and they compared it at different doses to Lovenox uh, for prevention of VTE after an elective total knee arthroplasty. It's a pretty big study. They enrolled 1,242 patients. Uh, overall treatment adherent was pretty good. And, you know, in these types of studies, they'll usually do venograms on everybody. They don't just like do Dopplers or wait for people to present with symptoms. Like they just everyone gets a venogram to see if there was a clot. Um, and so Which they were, that's not, not normal clinical practice. It's just a way of showing efficacy, right? Cause you need big enough numbers. And so if you're not picking up clots, you're not going to be able to show that it's superior to Lovenox. Um, and mm. so I, I get why they do it. We definitely don't do that in clinical practice. 
they were able to get venograms on, on 1,047 of these 1,219 patients um, within the right window. And so, like I said, they looked at different doses of, of milvexin. They were looking at you know, 25 twice a day, 50 twice a day, 100 twice a day, 200 twice a day. And then they also looked at like once a day dosing, um, like 25 once a day, 50 once a day, et cetera. And what they found is that at daily doses of 100 milligrams, so either 50 twice a day or 100 once a day and higher, the milvexin was actually superior to Lovenox 40 milligrams daily for prevention of BTE. Um, and so, you know, there were clots in both arms, but interestingly, if you look at the table, like almost every single clot was an asymptomatic distal DVT, um, which you would only pick up if you were looking for it. Right. And, you know, especially with like a venogram. Um, and so I thought that was it may interesting. not be clinically relevant, right? I mean, that's the, the subtext. Right. Probably is not clinically relevant. It is, it is a clot, but would it have caused problems? Probably mm -hmm. not. Um, but at the same time, it's just interesting to think like, wow, like out of this many patients, like this many had an asymptomatic distal DVT. 20%, like if, if, right? Like, um, on the Loven, think... in the Lovenox group, I think it was, or it was 20% total clot, right? In the Lovenox arm. I thought that's what I saw. Yeah. I think, and like, that I seemed high, but they're, yeah, they're doing venograms right. on all of them. So. Right. So like, yeah, so you, you know, you wouldn't really expect that in real life. Um, so anyway, that's interesting. There were two non-fatal PEs in the Melvexine arm versus one in the Lovenox arm. Uh, rates of bleeding of any severity were 4% in both groups. So, um, but as far as major bleeding goes, there was no major bleeding events in the Melvexine group. There was one major bleeding group in the anoxaparin, but there wasn't like a statistical difference. So, um, I think, you know, this is interesting. It's a pill. We love pills. I'm sure it'll be expensive when it gets approved. Um, but like if, if you, you know, we're, we're starting to use DOAX more in uh, prevention of ETE and these elective arthroplasties, like we recently changed our protocol here at the U of U so that that's kind of the first line agent is to get people on uh, a Pixaban or Rivaroxaban um, instead of Warfarin was what we were using a lot before um, for our high risk patients, we still actually use aspirin twice a day for our low risk patients. And, uh, that's, you know, not controversial, but you know, well, maybe it is controversial. There, there's a lot, we've talked about that before on the pod and we have some good data here that, that it actually is, it works just fine in the low risk people. Um, you sound like an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> we have independent data that validates this. Well, no, <laughs> Stacy actually published a paper on this just recently. Um, Maybe we should have reviewed it for the pod, but like they had pretty good outcomes actually um, in the aspirin arm. You know, there was no difference in clot, no difference in bleeding really either. Maybe it was lower bleeding. I should probably look that up. In any case, criticisms of this paper, um, you know, what dose of Lovenox should we use in these patients? I don't know. We frequently will use like the Lovenox 30 twice a day for the orthopedic type patients, but you, you know, some people do 40 once a day. So um, so maybe if they used Lovenox 30 twice a day, the efficacy would be the same. I don't know. Um, and then this was an open label, right? You got a pill versus a shot. And so there's always risk for bias there. Um, especially if you're looking at things like bleeding events, like, you know, maybe they were picking up the bleeding events better in the Lovenox arm or, you know, whatever. Um, but overall, I think it's an interesting trial. And, you know, if this comes on the market, like something I'd be interested in looking at. Yeah, maybe Milvixine 
in 10 years, maybe we'll be prescribing Milvixian. Maybe 20. I don't know. When does the patent run out? Maybe they would like to sponsor our podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> Bristol Myers Squids. Isn't it? <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, yes. Interesting. And uh, more sort of, I mean, not confusion, but more in the world of, of DVT prophylaxis, which is a murky world. Murky. Um, so murky. All right. So I'm going to talk about um, GI bleeding with uh, oral anticoagulants. And I think we're going to go into work. I'm going to go into warp speed. So rivaroxaban is associated with higher rates of gastrointestinal bleeding than other direct oral anticoagulants, a nationwide propensity score weighted study. This was done by uh, Ingeson and colleagues, um, published in Annals in 11, on 11-16-2021. And uh, the title says it all, right? That's all we need to know. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's a lot of background here. Um, the initial atrial fibrillation studies where it all began for DOAX showed that warfarin and apixaban had similar GI bleeding rates, whereas rivaroxaban, edoxaban, and dabigatran all had higher rates of GI bleeding than warfarin. Um, Meta-analyses and real-world data since then have been a little bit equivocal, but meta-analyses have actually shown higher rates of GI bleeding for DOAX, but lower intracranial hemorrhage and mortality rates. And again, the real-world data has been conflicting, and we have also talked about this previously. Um, but this study sought to evaluate comparative risks of GI bleeding between DOACs in a large real-world real population of new DOAC users. Um, and it was, it was done within Iceland, which is a, has a single nationalized healthcare system, but makes it potentially less generalizable. Um, the exposure was DOAC treatment, so apixaban, rivaroxaban, or dabigatran. I'm not going to talk any more about dabigatran. Um, the primary outcome was any clinically relevant GI bleed, which was defined as bleeding leading to medical intervention, unscheduled physician contact, or temporary treatment cessation. Um, they had a novel way of identifying GI bleeds. They used ICD-10 codes, but they also looked at all endoscopies done in patients who were on DOACs and... Um, they use the death registry to identify folks who had died from a GI bleed. So um, it's more effective than using only ICD-10 codes. And they were, you know, sort of um, excited about that. They did use ICD-10 codes for other areas of the study. Um, so there were 5,858 total patients, 2,157 of which got a Pixaban, 3,217 got Rivaroxaban. The baseline characteristics were basically well-matched, but I thought um, there was less antiplatelet use with Rivaroxaban. There was more PPI use with the Pixaban. Um, and the main indication was, was AFib for both groups, 82.8% um, for apixaban versus 76.6 for rivaroxaban. VTE was the indication for DOAC use in 10.9% of apixaban versus 18.8% of rivaroxaban patients. Um, there were, you know, only 241 total GI, GI bleeds, um, and rivaroxaban was associated with higher rates of overall GI bleeds, so 3.2 um, events per 100 person years versus 2.5, so that's rivaroxaban versus apixaban. That corresponded to a hazard ratio of 1.42. They were also associated Rivaroxaban was also associated with higher rates of ma major GI bleeding at 1.9 versus 1.4 Riva versus Apixaban per 100 person years. That corresponded to a hazard ratio of 1.5. Um, they did a lot of sort of subgroup analyses. Um, the result was not affected by indication or geographic location. Um, a few notes here that the mean follow-up for Apixaban was 1.2 years. The mean follow-up for Rivaroxaban was 1.6 years, which is relatively short in my opinion. 
Um, you know, overall, I think the results make sense because of rivaroxaban's um, dosing, you know, higher plasma peak concentrations, um, lower troughs may lead to more bleeding. Um, and I think this overall sort of contributes to what seems to be a growing body of data showing slightly higher bleeding risk overall with rivaroxaban. Um, you know, the numbers also, again, were sort of small. So is it clinically relevant? Um, you know, you want to prevent bleeding when you can. So um, we've said this before, Pixaban is my favorite oral anticoagulant, um, and, I, and this, this supports that, so I will continue to believe that. <laughs> yeah. I'm also an Apixaban guy, but I think, you know, a lot of patients do just fine on Rivaroxaban, and if they have a preference for like a once-a-day drug, I think it's totally fine to use Rivaroxaban, but maybe if they've had a history of GI bleed, then you take that into account with your shared decision-making, and yeah, go Iceland, man. Go, go Iceland. Must, must be nice about, to have a single payer healthcare system. They have, they, they, they have like one tertiary care hospital, I think. I mean, it's a small country, but like they yeah. have this capital hospital that's, you know, in the capital that I can't pronounce. Um, and then they have Is these, it? oh yeah, they have seven other little satellite hospitals, but it sounds like if anything serious happens, they just get sent to this big hospital in the capital. <laughs> It's like so different than here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're the capital of the Intermountain West. So yeah. There you go. Cool. You, All right. You. One more thrombosis paper. So this was interesting. Uh, as I was, you know, getting ready yesterday, I, I, I just happened to see this was published yesterday. I was like, oh, great. Now we got to do this one too. Uh, so this was risk for recurrent uh, venous thromboembolism in patients with subsegmental PE managed without anticoagulation. And this was published November 23rd in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So this question comes up all the time. Um, you know, you, 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 I do know the patient thrombologist. I yeah, do know. You, you know, that you come in, the, the patient comes in with some symptom, gets a CTPA and there's like an isolated or like a couple subsegmental PEs. It's like, oh man, what do we do with that? Like, is that- Could their syncope be from this? Yeah. It's like, you know, is this a false positive or, you know, it's just a filling defect, right? We can't actually see clot, um, you know, or, or whatever. And, and so the question is always, you know, should we anticoagulate these people or not? And there's really not a lot of great evidence to support that decision-making. You know, we think that these are probably lower risk because they're small. So they probably came from a small, you know, maybe a distal DVT or something that itself isn't clinically that, you know, meaningful or, you know, and, and, and we know that CTPA is really good at detecting PEs, right? Because and getting better, right? Like yeah. gotten a lot better. Right. The incidence of PE is increasing because we're diagnosing mm -hmm. it more, but the case fatality rates are going down because we're probably over-diagnosing PEs, right? So if you look at the chest guidelines, um, which were, I think the last update I looked at was 2016, but I know there was a recent update that I need to look at still. You know, they recommend surveillance over anticoagulation for subsegmental PE in patients who have like negative Dopplers. So lower extremity duplexes and who are also at low risk for VTE recurrence, but that's a weak recommendation based on low level evidence, grade two C, right? So that doesn't make <laughs> anybody feel warm and fuzzy. And they also it's in the guidelines, it's in the guidelines, <laughs> but you know, they would exclude hospitalized patients, patients with cancer, patients with recent surgeries. Cause you know, those are all higher risk for recurrence. But what this study did is they just took a prospective cohort and just, you know, they had patients with subsegmental PE, um, 
they made sure they didn't have cancer. They excluded people with history of clot, history of oxygen, or if they have an oxygen requirement, if they have another reason to be on anticoagulation, if they're pregnant or hospitalized, all those people were excluded. And then they screened everyone with duplexes at the time of this diagnosis. And then they would screen them again one week later. 6.2% uh, had a DVT on their duplex at the time of diagnosis. So only 6%, that seems pretty low. And 3.4% had DVT at follow-up a week later. Those people were started on anticoagulation and then not really included in the analysis. So of the 266 patients left over who were managed without anticoagulation, 3% had, a, or 3.1% had a recurrent BTE within 90 days. And half of those were PE and half of them were proximal DVT. There were no fatalities. Um, so this 3% number is interesting. Was, I don't mean to, I should have read this closer. That, that means they represented, right? They came right. back. Yeah, they, were, it wasn't, and they, they weren't surveilling in any way after right. that first scan, right? That's, that's so, exactly so, right. Okay. Yeah. So they basically gave them a card that was like, please call us. If you have any of these symptoms, we'll get you back in and we'll, we'll reevaluate you. But they did not do routine surveillance of everybody. So it was only if someone developed symptoms and came in that they would get diagnosed. So this 3% is symptomatic clots. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And so the reason that number is kind of interesting is because, you know, if you have someone who's admitted or someone who's diagnosed with a PE and you put them on anticoagulation, the rate of recurrence on anticoagulation is about 3%. Right. And so like you're going to, you know, because anticoagulation is perfect. You're trying to reduce the risk of, of another blood clot, but 3% of people have clots even on anticoagulation. So whatever that's worth. So, you know, of these patients, they broke them down into single versus multiple subsegmentals. Uh, if you had a single subsegmental, your risk was 2%. If you had multiple, it was 5.7%. They also broke them down by age, people over 65, their risk was 5.5%. If you were under 65, it was 1.8%. So I think this is like helpful information just when you're trying to do some, you know, decision-making with your patient and kind of prognosticating, like, look, you have a three to 5% chance of having a recurrent clot in the next 90 days. Um, and, you know, none, none of these people died, but, you know, there were four PEs. And so like, you know, so there is some risk. And so I think you can use that when you're deciding, I think I, I'm still leaning towards, you know, most of these people not treating if they have negative Dopplers and they otherwise are a low risk of blood clots. Um, but if there's anything kind of fishy or if the patient's really worried, like I have no problem putting them on anticoagulation. Like, I think it's totally justifiable to do it if the, you know, the rates of recurrence are that high. Um, but you know, it would be interesting to have a study like this where it's like randomized though. And you have like, this group gets no anticoagulation. This group does get anticoagulation. See, if, see what the differences are there, but this is, I think this is a helpful place to start. I'm glad they did this study. Yeah. I, I, I wonder what this looks like sort of practically, like who is the, the, you know, sort of case patient for this study. Like, like in my experience, you know, people come in, they get the CT for something and, and that then whatever the something is, is attributed to the PE. So, so, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, maybe they have a little bit of chest pain, the scan gets done. And then by the time they've gotten, you know, a dose of morphine and some Tylenol, the pain's gone and it doesn't come back. And then you're like, well, that was probably something else. So what is, you know, 
I think it's reasonable to decide if they're, you know, not hypoxic, all the things that these guys said, I think it's reasonable not to treat that patient. But then what does the recurrence look like? And what's seen on the scan? You know, is it like, oh, the clot's grown a slight bit and that's a recurrence and now we're going to treat you or you have like, like, obviously if you have a different clot or, or a proximal DVT, you know, completely new PE or proximal DVT, then it's like, okay, that's a recurrent clot. But like, it's still so murky. I do think you're right that, you know, older multiple clots, um, you know, things like that. It's nice to have evidence like this and, and any, you know, contributions to sort of this murky area are appreciated, but I think it's still, gray and murky and it's like when you know when are you telling them to come back why are you telling them to come back what does the scan look like at that point you yeah. know I, I i mean i'm glad they sort of stuck to their guns on on a lot of them you know like we're not going to anticoagulate let's just like ride this out glad no one died like you've got that in your back pocket you know like <laughs> yeah. um maybe you get a little clot or a ditzel or something but uh you probably won't die <laughs> yeah so i think anyway. and it really does come down to the patient in front of you like you really can't generalize too much and so yeah like looking at the patient like why did we get the ctpa in the first place right like did they have mm-hmm. like a high pretest probability of a pe um did they have a really high d dimer like those are things that would probably you know push me maybe towards treating just depending on what their history is but like but yeah if you were just like scanning because you know we scan everyone that comes in or whatever and they didn't really have like a very good story for a PE. And then you find this thing that you're not sure. Like I, you know, I'd feel better about not treating that probably. Or if you got a patient with like a high bleeding risk, you know, you're Mm. like, no, I'd prefer not to put you on anticoagulation. And I think that's justifiable too. So. There are, I mean, we've talked, I don't know how many papers of like CTs or PEs we've talked about now, like definitely a handful and like everyone struggles with this, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, should we get the scan? What should we do with the scan? How should we follow it up? It's like, yeah. and, and I'm not, I think it's good that we're trying, but <laughs> there's not been anything that's been like, Oh, sweet. Like this definitely is like black and white. And I don't, I think we never will get unre- there. Yeah, yeah. That's unrealistic, but um <laughs> You know, we'll keep trying, I guess. <laughs> ah, it's the art of medicine, Dr. Ruff. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, Dr. Jenkins. All right. Well, cool. Well, I think we uh, somehow made it through seven papers. Um, uh, sorry if you're still listening. Uh, hope you have a really great Thanksgiving. Uh, and yeah, any, any last words, Dr. Rupp? I mean, are we, yeah, we're just going to become last month of medicine review so many papers you can't keep your head straight and uh, never have anyone but us just droning on and on. So I think uh, I think come January, I'll have more time in my life if you want to do more frequent episodes. So we'll just see how it goes. We got to also we'll have guests. We got to hype that up. We'll get some some smart people back on board so that you guys don't have to just listen to us. <laughs> OK, sounds good. All right. All man. Right. Good to see you. Yeah. Happy Take Thanksgiving. Care. You too. Right, bye now.